On this episode of This Week in Space, it's back to the headlines for Tarek and me. The moon is in our sights. Stay with us. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is This Week in Space, episode number 99, recorded on February 23rd, 2024. Moonshots, falling satellites, and starships. Hello and welcome to another star-spangled episode of This Week in Space, the These Headlines Are Awesome edition. We've got a ton of stuff to cover, so I'll hurry up and welcome my insidious companion, Tarek Malik, editor-in-chief at Space.com. Yeah, because you're a sneaky. <laughs> hey, Rod, how's it going? How are things? You haven't snuck off your chair in a while. I'm good. How are you? It's like we barely start and you're already digging at the chair, man. So I, I got a 30 seconds. I'm, my, I'm captain's, pretty, my captain's chair. Pretty impressed with myself. Before we attempt liftoff today, please don't forget to do us a solid. Make sure to like, subscribe, and do all those other cool podcast things because we need it. We love you. We want you to love us. And don't make me come over there and blow you out your airlock to get you to comply. So we'll take five stars or thumbs up or six comments or whatever they give you. All right. A space joke. A. Yes, I'm ready. Listener Megan on Discord, that was her handle. She's smart enough not to send a last name to us. Um, Hey, hey, Tarek. Yes, Rod. How can I finance my own spaceship? I don't know. How? How can you do that? By using Rocket Mortgage, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you. I'll tell you, just just a quick aside, that uh, Rocket Mortgage came a little too late before, for, for me to buy the house, but I was totally kicking myself that I couldn't do that because it felt very on-brand for me to have bought my first house in a town that has birthed not one but two astronauts uh, with, 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 with that company. But, and they're not a sponsor, by the way, so not a sponsor. Well, they just, were. <laughs> oh, that, okay, well, great, even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and... and uh, uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but they partially still are because they uh, do the Rocket Money. Uh, I suppose Rocket Money, oh, yeah. them, but well, Rocket Money is the current yeah, yeah. sponsor. Well, yeah, I they, did. They bought that previous group, and Rocket Money is cool. My statement was not was not sponsored by them. <laughs> that was yeah. a perfect. I'm Mine neither. But, but the whole idea behind Rocket Money, I, I use their predecessor, and it's amazing because it's like. You know, who knew that we were giving monthly money to the the fund to save Amazonian spiders for the last 10 years or something. So it's nice to <laughs> know what you're getting into. Okay, one more. Try yes. again from Discorder of the handle. I believe it's pronounced Fetchy Opus. Fetchy um, Opus. Wow. Son. Hey, dad, can you tell me what a solar eclipse is? Dad. No, son. Ah! Oh, that took that me too takes long. A minute, didn't it? <laughs> uh, for those oh, who I haven't like... caught up yet, no S U N. Not bad, huh? <laughs> okay. Like, it's like I'm still wow, getting it. Right? it. <laughs> and Sorry. I didn't even have to pay it for that one. Well, that's cool. Thank you. No. All right. So let's move on to headlines. And this is kind oh, of going to be a headline show. So we'll yeah. take a break after the first few. But we're kind of rocking and rolling through the headlines of 2024 because it's been busy. I know. A lot of good things have happened. And 24 is looking a lot better than 23 was in terms of spaceflight, right? At least at least with missions, man. I mean, this is like the, what, the third week of February. We're not even in yeah. like the... <laughs> and and we, uh, I just thought it would be good to take a minute to try to catch our breath to see where things are. Because, I mean, just, just in the last week alone... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted, Rod. I don't know about you. <laughs> so, 
No, in a good way. In a good way. Well, I run a quarterly, so I can look at the stuff at my leisure and scratch and yawn and you know maybe that one. You're the one that has to do stuff every hour. I just want to say before we start, one of the big moments in 2024 for me so far has been to see Blue Origin finally moving something out the back of one of their factories instead of all the stuff going in the front door. <laughs> That's right. Now, it's a fake rocket. It's not the real thing. It's a, a mating test item. But it did go out, and it's sitting on a pad, and it looks magnificent, and I just wanted to be able to push the button and make it go. Right? Yeah. Yeah, we have a – well, we have, we've got a, a link – uh, with some images to share for folks that are watching the video uh, later. But, uh, oh, getting ahead, getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, but that that's right. I mean, very rare public reach out. Outreach? Is that right? Public affairs, like like uh, from, 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 from the origin. North Korea of commercial space, yes. <laughs> with, with, with images, and they showed some video earlier of a rocket test. Um, very exciting to see that. But, you know, we expect hopefully that that first launch will be coming out that later that, by the end of the year. So... I'm going to hedge and say the end of the year. <laughs> for anybody who's who's looking askance at us, you know, for people in our trade, we've been following Blue Origin since the year 2000. Yeah. And you've seen what SpaceX has done starting two years later, and it's been a bit of a head scratcher as to what's taken so long. There are lots of opinions. You know, the nasty ones are, oh, it's all a tax write-off, which that's a lot of materials going in that front door and a lot Bill, of engineering for a tax write-off, so I don't buy bill, that. B- billion a year for a while there. Uh, Jeff Bezos was paying a billion a year. Yeah, to, to but, but they're doing stuff. It's not like yeah. it's, you know, some kind of laundering scheme. Or and something. they did just they're change building. their CEO last year, you know, to kind yeah. of get, write that ship. I, I guess there was some that's some internal third, stuff. Third time? Mm, There's Rob Meyerson. He was president, anyway. And, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess that'd be third. I guess that'd be three. Yeah. Well, but you know what? If, they, if that moves them ahead and, you know, Bezos doesn't, I mean, Bezos left uh, as the chief of Amazon to go concentrate on Blue Origin, which I thought yeah. was a good move. But I don't think he's an Elon Musk kind of boss. I, I don't get the impression of what I've heard anyway, that he stalks the halls and, you know, pulls people out of their offices and gives them a tongue lashing or anything. He's just, you know, running the company. And they're also um, building a satellite constellation company at the same time that I'm sure he's working on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to the elephant in the room, the landing of Odysseus from the IM one mission of intuitive machines with NASA under the clips program where NASA, then it's important to remember because you know, the, the, the mainstream press, Oh, it's a private spacecraft and all that. It is, but it's a private spacecraft that has been largely underwritten by NASA money. That said, these guys have been around since 2008, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. Uh, for the Google Lunar X Prize, which which actually never awarded a prize. They were around for years and years and just didn't get it. But that's where they started. So they've been at it a really long time. They've got a lot of their own money in it. So the, the NASA underwriting is, I'm sure, very appreciated, but it's it's not a sole source thing. Yeah, and so this is like our flagship story for for the week because I'm sure that if you haven't heard about it, you might have seen it in passing. But basically, this company, Intuitive Machines, based in Houston, for the first time ever, landed a soft landed a private spacecraft. This uh, I think it's like a four kilogram uh, or forty kilogram uh, a spacecraft on the surface of the moon near the South Pole in Malapert A crater, which is very close to kind of one of the the shortlisted places that NASA wants to send Artemis astronauts. Uh, so they landed it and man, the way that they landed it <laughs> was, was crazy. Um, but it, it's also, uh, it has 
It has uh, uh, six NASA payloads. No, uh, yeah, and um, and six, I think, regular commercial payloads. Maybe a, a few more back and forth there. Uh, maybe Excuse twelve me. or twelve. So uh, the launch mass was forty two hundred pounds. So forty two hundred pounds. More. <laughs> the payload capacity is one hundred kilograms. I'm, I must be thinking of, uh, uh, of of something else. I'm sorry about that. You're thinking of your poodle, yeah. <laughs> Um, but man, it was just, I'm, I'm, I'm just distracted. Cause this, this all happened kind of last evening around dinner time for, for, for folks on that, on the East coast, um, spacecraft launched about a, about a week ago, uh, last week, uh, it took about eight days to get there. And then, uh, it's going to spend hopefully two weeks going on. And the reason that I seem kind of out of breath is because they got to the moon and they were supposed to land at one time. 5.49 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and then we found out as we got closer that, no, they're going to move the landing time up to like 4.30 or so, 4.24. And it's like, well, that's interesting because you very rarely see yeah. moon landing get moved up like that. Like, I think we, we would love to have seen earlier moon landings. And then we get word back that they've actually pushed the, the, the landing later. Now it's going to be at 6.24 p.m. Right. Eastern time. So clearly there was something going on. They chose to stay in orbit an extra um, an extra trip around the moon before doing their deorbit burns, and apparently the laser ranging guidance system on this lander failed. Basically, the intuitive machines one that they built to detect the ground and tell it how high it is off the ground and help navigate down to a safe landing. Yeah, range just, and velocity. Yeah, exactly. It, it just it stopped working, and by coincidence or design, one of the NASA payloads on this mission is a prototype, an experimental laser. Uh, uh, guidance, a uh, navigation uh, system, and they were able to write like a patch for the computer on this spacecraft to use the experimental NASA data that has like never been tested before. Pop it in into uh, uh, into the actual system for this computer, and then it landed on like on the ground on the moon and right side up, right side up. Unlike the Japanese lander, yeah, which Japan Slim can't say, um, and. And it was so, it was so tense because the the time for it to have landed, they they didn't have a lot of bandwidth with this spacecraft, so you don't have that live video of the moon getting closer and closer and closer. Um, you know the the telemetry, all of that like, that we're used to seeing that we saw with the Ar- uh, the Artemis one mission, where you see the moon get closer and then they whip around for close right. approach and all that. They didn't have that. What they had was uh just like tones coming back and then nothing, and they're waiting to hear back from uh from the spacecraft and and it's really quiet and everyone was tense and we're worried right because this is another failure for this commercial plan you mentioned that nasa bankrolled a lot of this 118 million dollars is nasa's investment in this one mission and we already saw the peregrine mission by astrobotic fail last month uh and then you hear tim kane the mission um the mission director at intuitive machines say we're not, we're not dead yet live on the, the open mic to everybody. And, uh, and then they, they confirmed that they had a faint, uh, a faint signal. It's faint, but it's there is what he said. Right. Uh, it's a heartbeat. And, 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 uh, and a few hours later they confirmed it was on the ground. They were in, in, uh, uh, in contact with it this morning. They said it, it, like even more robustly that it was upright, that it's solar arrays were charging, that they're, oh. they're getting the telemetry. It sounds like the whole thing worked. Now they do have a press conference as we're recording this. It's going to be late in the day on Friday. We're going to, we're expecting hopefully to get our first picture from, um, from the, the, the spacecraft. And one thing in particular 
that is on this uh, mission is called Eagle Cam. It's a it's an Emory Riddle University student built project that, if it worked, would give us our first ever. Uh, they call it a third person uh, view. Basically, it popped a camera out to record, hopefully, a view of the spacecraft as it was landing, not afterward, like we saw with Slim, but. Uh, uh, but as it was landing, which will be really exciting to see again, if it, if it worked, it, it, it was a, it so, was a, a test. So yeah, let me just, just uh, add a little detail. So this thing was supposed to pop out at I think about a hundred feet and I never did see how far away it was supposed to get, but it was supposed to land tangential to the, to where the lander was going to set down. Now, I don't know how they figure out to get the camera pointing in the right direction, <laughs> unless they, they may have just had a 360 uh, camera in there or something, but uh to look back and it's a little bit like the reverse of uh, back in the Apollo days when for those final missions, the lunar rover was able to move its camera over and watch the ascent module take mm-hmm. off. This is kind of mm-hmm. like the inverse. Why is it important? Well, it's cool for one thing. It's b- good public relations, but also, you know, we need to start studying how plumes form and, and uh, how the lunar surface reacts to rockets because uh, over the years they've realized that when you, come down on the lunar surface if you're firing all the way down to the surface which is a question uh, especially for end man stuff you can shut off early because it doesn't weigh much there but um it's a problem because you get all this ejecta coming up underneath the rocket engine everything from yeah. sand to pebbles and they're going really fast they're bullets some of them at least theoretically could even go into lunar orbit so you you want to know you know how you can mediate that uh, for future missions if you're in a place that you already kind of got people stationed, you can build a berm, of course, which is what people like Phil Metzger is suggesting. And that contains that. But for now, it's it's a bit of a problem. And you don't want to be an astronaut standing 100 or 200 yards away when this comes down and end up getting hit with a bunch of buckshot like a Claymore mine. Yeah, and so that 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 camera will give that that vantage point. It'll also look really cool if it works. Yeah. And NASA has another experiment on this. It's basically a downward-facing camera to study mm-hmm. exactly how the plume from the engine starts to kick away the dust, how much dust it kicks up because NASA wants to build moon ports, moon ports. Moon bases, Is that what you call yeah. it? A spaceport? I guess moon you would base. call it like a, like a, yeah. Well, yeah, NASA wants to build a moon base and for that you need places for your rockets to land and they need to know how far away do they have to build those places so that the dust and the, the regular the kicked up uh, from the landings and the liftoff doesn't, you know, coat or destroy those rovers that you're talking about, uh, the moon bases and all that, or the astronauts in their spacesuits going out for a walk to watch the, the launch. Um, and a lot of, there are a lot of other experiments. I don't know how deep you want to go, but just the fact that they got on the moon safely and got that signal back, which is, can be a measure of success is amazing. And um, the only as far as I remember, at least on the American side, the only real data we have on plumes came from the Apollo 12 landing, which was some distance away from Surveyor 3, which had landed mm-hmm. there about 18 months or two years earlier. It's amazing how quickly things are moving then. It was just doing a table of the timing of Apollo launches. It's like, wow, every two months, bam, there's another one. But, and speaking uh, of Apollo, th- this yes. is the first U.S. spacecraft to land on the moon since uh, 1972's Apollo 17 mission. So yet another big marker, like in milestone for this. Well, mission and too. first landing near the lunar South pole. That's right. That's right. Which is a big thing. Um, I, I just want to, before we go to the break, I just want to say, you know, it was so thrilling. So I was, I was watching it a little bit delayed because I got tied up while it was going on live, but it was so thrilling to hear this private company and their, 
their internal mission control, tossing back with, with NASA, as you already kind of touched on, back and forth with NASA about, hey, um, our guidance failed. Can we use that experiment you guys <laughs> stuck on there? I mean, you got to figure some some engineers sat down and did a little bit of research on this beforehand. If they didn't, they're crazy. But still, it was a little bit like being in the 1960s again. Here I go, old man, I know. But, you know, when you talk to, I was interviewing Jerry Griffin the other day for a project we're working on. He was talking about how fast things moved at NASA yeah. when they were young and how quickly they were able to pivot. We saw it on Skylab. We saw that on Apollo. Didn't see it in shuttle so much. But when problems came up in the 60s and early 70s, they'd get a team, a tiger team together and go in a room and solve it and just do stuff. And they're a little more risk adverse now. And there's a lot more procedures in place that are kind of ironclad. And I think to be fair, you know, back then they kind of had the mandate of heaven, if you will, from Congress to just make it happen, you know, get, Mm -hmm. get this Kennedy thing, get to the moon wrapped up so we can move on and spend less money. Now they're very risk adverse because they have to be because anytime something goes wrong, some congressman or senator steps up and says, this has to be investigated. And it's like, guys, space is tough. You've had rovers that worked on Mars for 14 years instead of the 90 days or 180 days they were supposed to do. Give these guys a break. They're doing good work. Yes, it's expensive. Hopefully, as we move ahead between private companies and it's worth saying international concerns because we saw what happened with India and the, mm-hmm. the Mars orbiter at $80 million. Um, you know, we can start bringing prices down where they belong. Anything else on this one uh, before we go to break? I, I would just say, uh, I think NASA's chief is clearly over the moon. If you want to oh, God. <laughs> let me, let me have that one. He called it a feat. <laughs> he called it a feat that was a quote, giant leap forward for all of humanity stay tuned which means they you know this isn't you know this isn't the first attempted private u.s spacecraft to land on the moon it is the first successful one he said there's more else i think didn't he say uh odysseus has conquered the moon or something he said odysseus has taken the moon and um and so uh you know it's it's, a little (laughs) post-colonial wasn't it well well they're they're excited you know and and there if you saw the photos of of just how intuitive machines was celebrating with like champagne. And there was like a father with a little onesie with his kid, uh, that kind of thing. It was just, it, it was a, I think a sign of things to come. Now they've shown that it can be done. And this wasn't like a SpaceX that did it. This was like a smaller right. company that did it. Um, and, uh, and NASA has partnerships with like three or four other companies, at least, if not more, uh, to do these similar things, to build bigger landers. The Viper uh, moon rover is, uh, is one of those that's going to start drilling into the, the southern, you know, the southern, the South Polar ice, uh, uh, or South Pole to, to look for ice. All of that stuff is riding on these commercial missions. Now NASA can say, hey, it was a good investment. You know, it can work. So. So we have uh, ground up the first half hour on one story. Oh, no. Oh, no. Let's go to a break. We'll yes, be right yes. back. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with more exciting space stuff. Don't go anywhere. And we're back. All right. I'm very excited. I'm sorry. I get to talk a lot. <laughs> Let's talk about crashing satellites. So, again, uh, if you're old enough to remember the 1970s, Skylab reentered, big, multi, multi ton, huge, largest, actually the largest single pressurized uh, vessel ever in space to date. Uh, if you don't, you know, count this modular space stations, the largest single space, big, heavy spacecraft came back mm-hmm. in 1979. 
and and for some of the same reasons that this European satellite was so unpredictable, because again, like in the Skylab days, we're near the peak of a solar maximum, and the atmosphere reacts to the incoming solar wind, and it, it expands a bit, and now you start dragging on the satellites, or back then Skylab, and wham, down it comes in your lap. So there was, uh, as usual, a fair amount of clickbaity news about, oh my God, there's going to be a fiery monster coming in the heavens that weighs a thousand tons, it's going to kill everybody, run and hide. Not quite the case, and this was the ERS-2 a satellite from the European Space Agency that came back uh, within a reasonable amount of time of their planned schedule. They still didn't know where it was going to come down exactly. We always hope over the Pacific Graveyard, but uh, yeah. as far as I know, nobody nobody caught anything in the head. I I picked this one because it's a nice bookend uh, for, for for this spacecraft for landing on the moon. Yeah. Well, no, well, no. The the European uh, remote sensing two satellite it was an Earth uh, observing satellite. It reentered on um, I think it was Wednesday this week as we're as we're recording this, and this is a, a spacecraft that actually ended its life um, thirteen years ago in July of 2011. Uh, and we wrote about it at space.com at mm. that time about the spacecraft is dead. It was the, at the time what, like one of the biggest defunct satellites and they didn't know what to do with it. And they knew they had to bring it out of orbit. So the European space agency planned a 66 engine burn uh, to bring this thing out Wait, of orbit back then. So, 66 burns or Separate yeah. burns, right? Well, separate burns, separate burns. Yeah, yeah. Like they don't have time, six, six engines to, on the thing, right? No, the, right. no. Yeah, that's just it's just you know puff, puff, puff to lower that orbit right. and to eventually bring it, bring it down. Took them, took them nearly thirteen years <laughs> yeah. to do it. And and so you're this right. was a this was a planned deorbit, though. I mean, that's been part of the agenda a long time. They were forward looking. Yeah. It wasn't required then, but at they least the Western powers have been trying to plan for disposal of satellites when they come back. Yeah, but they did all these burns back in 2011. Is what I'm what I'm saying. Yeah, you know they did they did it then, and then they had to just wait for gravity to do the rest of the work, and that's what's been going on uh, this entire time. And finally, the spacecraft did come down, uh, and it, it crashed in the the Pacific Ocean. But it was you know uncertain exactly when. I saw a lot of estimates that were ranging from you know off the coast of 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 Washington, like far off the coast of Washington, but that that level in the Pacific, all the way to off the coast of like Norway or whatnot in the last 24 hours. Um, but uh, but it, it was just kind of a, a sign that there's these, I mean, this is a, a 30 year life spacecraft. It's been up for decades uh, and it's not alone. There's a lot of satellites that are like this, that are up there and at their end of their life these days that this end of life plan is built into the mission plan. Right. Uh, you know, it wasn't so much 30 years ago um, about how to bring them back out uh, safely. Uh, well, so, excuse me, by, by Western powers, if you're talking powers. about, China and and possibly some others, not a much of a concern. They don't mind dumping space stations whenever they come down. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be snarky, but the idea of letting Tiangong 2 come down uncontrolled because you didn't plan for it is obscene. That's right, and that was the second prototype of the uh, Tiangong space station that they had, had for for a while. Yeah. Uh, and that was another one where no one knew where it was going to come down, you know. Uh, but they, but nobody knew by design in that case. That's exactly. So they didn't, they didn't like, care. Eh, who cares? It'll hit so, a somewhere. Maybe those rotten Americans. Yeah. So they, they think that this fell, uh, fell to earth over, um, the North Pacific Ocean between Alaska and Hawaii, which is not a small space to, to say the least. Um, but it is a fairly remote and, and empty place in terms of like cities and, and whatnot. So, 
You know, but you know, there's sometimes one of, one of these giant things is parts of it's five thousand pounds. Stuff is going to survive, you know, right. all the way down into the ocean. It's why they dump that stuff in the ocean, and why the space station is going to get dumped there eventually too. But man, you got to watch out for boats, for planes, all that stuff. You know, eventually, so they're going to have to keep track of all of that. It's uh, for this. It's new true, stuff. but you know, statistically, when you look at the size of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and the estimates I saw were between 10 and 20% of something of this mass construction might survive, which is enough to ruin your day, but it would have to be a really bad, bad luck day for you to be smacked by it. Um, but, uh, and it'd be interesting to see when they start, I'm sure they're already doing them and they start studying the deorbit plants, at the space station, what percentage of those components given that construction, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of bigger, heavier pieces up there like batteries and so forth. Can you imagine a battery coming back in one piece? Oh my gosh! No, bad day. Well, we've, and we've seen we've seen some of the tanks and stuff that that, that have washed up from the ocean from yeah, but a tank's boosters. Well, are they if they're frozen solid because they still had fuel in them? Right? Oh well, that's true. Yeah, yeah, although if that happens, I think they explode. Let's let's not get too carried away with this. Let's <laughs> we, talk about Varda, huh? Yeah, we we have we have actually a good reentry. Uh, to discuss too. And this is another fun one that had a, a, a very kind of tenterhooks feel to it because the private company Varda Space Systems made another kind of history this week. On the same day that the ERS-2 satellite crashed to Earth, Varda <clears throat> brought back their private capsule, the uh, W-1 capsule, and landed it uh, under parachutes and a heat shield and a capsule, you know, uh, in, uh, in Utah, in the same place where NASA brought back uh, pieces of the the Bennu asteroid, uh, this these this these Utah proving ranges. That's where they dropped this thing uh, there, and this was a mission uh, that uh, was basically geared towards orbital manufacturing. It's a little, um, it's a little kind of prototype to see what can we manufacture in space and can can we bring it back and then use it. So they they actually. Uh, used it to bring to make uh, crystals for an antiviral medication uh, to to grow it in orbit. It's called um, I think I'm going to pronounce this right, ritonavir, rit, rit, ritonavir. And but just, it's used- just to be excuse me, but just to be clear, it, it's not like this docked with the space station, did work no. there, and then reentered. This was all uh, the entire plant was automated and it, in the it, capsule, and it's it was all big. in. Yeah, it was all in the in the, in the space capsule. It launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, I believe, uh, and it's been in orbit for quite some time. In fact, they had hoped to bring it back last year, but it turned out that apparently they didn't have all of the clearances <laughs> with the, the FAA, FAA. Yeah. <laughs> to to bring that to bring it back, which which uh, uh, kept it in space for a little bit longer. And that's where the drama kind of came through because it wasn't sure uh, where and when. Varda would be able to get their spacecraft back to Earth. They knew that they could get it back to Earth, but they, you know, they they, they wanted to make sure that they got it into a safe place. They actually were speaking with um, uh, folks in Australia and have since made an agreement with uh, part of that 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 government to um, uh, to cooperate on spacecraft reentries. Uh, but eventually, the outback is a great place to dump spacecraft. That's right. <laughs> it's big. You were talking about Skylab earlier, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's crashed over, over Australia. Um, but I, I think one thing that came out of that is that a, they were able to make inroads and, 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 um, and get agreements with the, the government to have that, that FAA reentry. But this is the first private space capsule reentry to land like this, you know, mm-hmm. and they did it successfully on the first try, which is also pretty amazing. The last, uh, uh, 
the other commercial reentries we've had have been, you know, SpaceX's Falcon 9 first stages, uh, Starship's, you know, discussions for their launches and their, their hopes to, to reenter, and then uh, Blue Origins uh, landing and Virgin Galactic's uh, space plane. So th- they all have to have their own separate reentry uh, uh, plans as part of their missions. Um, those are all different places and different locations, so it's separate um, because they didn't use a government range. They used, you know, private spaceports and whatnot. Uh, but this can be uh, basically a, a stepping stone to either self-contained uh, in, in space, you know, factories, which I've read about in science fiction by Ben Bova like decades ago, uh, or a, a mechanism to bring things back uh, maybe more affordably than than full-on spacecraft uplift and, and downlift uh, to these commercial space stations that are all, you know, being designed right now and uh, and prepared for launch to retire the space station. Well, and it's good to know that when I need a replacement prostate, they'll be able to boost a capsule as long as I can pay for it, send a capsule up there. Because this, as you point out, is the first autonomous manufacturing in mm-hmm. orbit. You know, there have been other things that were, uh, as I as I recall, run somewhat autonomously on the space station, for instance. But this was just a capsule that did its own thing and... Mm-hmm. Good dog, and thank you, and come on back. All right, uh, let's take w- one more break, and we will be back to talk about <gasps> Starship. <laughs> so, Tark, what's happening? <laughs> Look into your crystal ball, my friend. Yeah. Starship 2024. How many of them are stacked up? I think there's, last I saw, there was either four or five standing in a row, like good soldiers waiting to go. Oh, yeah, and they've got other ones. Starbase. Uh, they've yeah. got other ones, like, uh, under construction right now. Yeah. Uh, this week was the the commercial space conference uh, that the FAA uh, works together with the Commercial Space Flight Federation uh, to put on every year. And um, as part of that, Ars Technica uh, got an interview with um, uh, an official at the FAA with that with that commercial space division, um, who said that SpaceX actually has asked you know is seeking a waiver to be able to uh, to launch up to nine Starship missions in 2024 alone. And this uh, this I think came from uh, was it Eric Berger over at Arsendica? It was it was Eric. Berger. Is it ever anybody else? <laughs> he actually got an award for his work uh, covering commercial space flight. So congratulations, uh, Eric Berger, on that, that, that award this week from that conference. Um, but yeah, yeah, this, this is interesting because it shows that uh, SpaceX is, is looking at that uh, at this year as a, a pretty crucial kickoff for Starship, not one-off uh, tests, and then they're back down. They're looking to scale it so that they can get to where they need to be. We've already talked on the show several times, I think, right, Rod, about how... SpaceX needs to fly a lot of test flights, a lot of test flights. And we're not the only people talking about it. I think there's probably some people at NASA whispering in the halls. I hope these guys start flying these things faster because we got a date to keep on the moon. That's right. What what, what did we talk about last time? Was it 14 ish or so? Well, so Uh, that was the that's the number that's been going around. But as I recall, the in that press conference where Bill Nelson finally (laughs) finally pulled the pull the knife on the SpaceX rep. I think she said 10 or more, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Which yeah. is still a lot. So, so, you know, and that, that's that, a that, lot of fast tanking and launching. And, and let's not forget, they got to get the chemicals down to Starbase because they mm-hmm. truck them in. They don't make them there. They got to get a lot of propellant down there to do and, that. And that was basically for one one trip to the moon 
uh, for an Artemis, right. uh, a crude landing. Uh, just right. to be clear, it, it would be it would be you launch a starship, then you launch between ten and fourteen more to refuel it, and then send it to the uh, send it to the moon. That sort of a thing. So to to demonstrate that scale, um, uh, SpaceX is, is hoping maybe to launch up to nine of them. They were talking to the to um, uh, Kevin Coleman. Eric was at the uh, he's the administrator for the uh, commercial space transportation uh, office at the FAA, and he's the one that said they're, they're working to try to get through this licensing process. And so that's a lot of launches, you know, if, well, they, it's a lot of launches, but at that rate, it will take over a year to refuel one, one lunar lander. Yeah. So they're going to have to step it up over that. fast. Exactly. So, so that, 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 that is one, actually, you know, I hadn't even thought about that as a pace, yeah, right? right? Because the vehicle's not done yet. And then, I think it's important to say that the vehicle's not done yet. What SpaceX has shown is right. that they can launch slow to iron out the kinks and then they can just like launch, 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 launch. We've seen that over the last year. They might launch up to 115 uh, missions uh, this year alone. With the Falcon 9. With yeah. the Falcon 9, yeah. And and they launched 96 uh, with Falcon 9 missions. Yeah, last, what a uh, rate, huh? Last, last year. And so... That's uh, so, what one every three and a half days. Three oh my gosh, days, it was like that. Can you imagine? There was a John, Falcon 9 John's launch. doing the math right now, but yeah, <laughs> there was a Falcon Nine launch last night. Um, but uh, it was a Starlink launch, by the way. Um, but uh, uh, the reason I bring this up is because, in addition to Eric's great story, everyone should go read it uh, over at Ars Technica. There was an interesting interview uh, on X, which you know I think we still call it Twitter over here. And, and this interview was by, uh, she's a, a writer, Catherine Brodsky. She had one of those live, those X lives or Twitter lives with mm-hmm. Elon. And in that discussion, which was picked up by, um, uh, the San Antonio, uh, express and a few or express news and a few other publications in that interview, Elon is like, Hey, yeah, we're, we're, we're getting ready for the third flight. And it's probably going to be in the, the first or second week of, of March. So there's a, there's another timeline, right? About them getting ready to, to launch that, uh, that vehicle. And, uh, and at the same time, there's news coming out that they're going to be expanding the, the, the Starbase, uh, uh, headquarters, uh, you know, I think somewhere to the tune of a hundred million, uh, dollar expansion there that I'd seen, uh, just recently out of the, um, the Brownsville, uh, news area. Uh, so there's a lot of things scaling up for sure to try to reach the, not just this nine flight launch rate, uh, because if they if they if they get through even half of that this uh, th- this year they'll have to scale that up what twice two right. two well, maybe more so to to address that uh, since we're talking about brilliant engineering our our brilliant uh, John on the on the board says not four days not not one launch every four days not one every four point one days but one every four point one one days <laughs> last year so that last gives year it, but that's the Falcon Nine that's the Falcon Nine and we SpaceX. Have, Space, they want to they want to launch one of these things and bring it back and fuel it up and launch at the same day, you know. Yeah. That's, what that's that's where they want to get to uh, right now, and you know they'll get there eventually. I think because that's the one thing I've learned from SpaceX and Elon Musk is they they may not get there on the timetable that Elon says with his optimistic timelines, um, but yeah. eventually, um, if the business case is there, which it was for reusable flight, uh, as we've seen, uh, they will eventually get there because they've, I think they've they've flown. As many dragons, uncrewed and crewed, um, um, as uh, space shuttle missions, if if memory serves, um, that'd be one hundred and thirty-five. Yeah, I'm not, I, I mean, as time, so I, mean, I would have to double check. Don't quote me on that. I, I I saw that stat somewhere from SpaceX, and I would have to go back and. Sorry, check. I, already, <laughs> I already chiseled it into my phone tablets here. Um, 
you know, it, it's, it's so you're absolutely right. You know, his timetables are, are wackadoodle and they're all over the place. And, you know, we were hearing we were going to be on Mars in 2018, that kind of stuff. But betting against Mr. Musk does not seem to be a winner's game. No. I ain't bet, doing, doing any bets on, on Twitter slash X or at this point, maybe even Tesla in the long haul. But certainly for SpaceX, I mean, just nothing else even comes close. And of course, he's got this secret superpower, not so secret superpower, which is Win Shotwell running the day-to-day operations there like a beast. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it, they're just unstoppable. I mean, when one co- company comes out of basically nowhere and says, we're going to take over the launch business, and NASA and Air Force, everybody else goes, yeah, kid, that's nice. Step outside the circus tent and sweep up after the elephants, please. And then the next thing you know, he's monopolized a big chunk of the world's launch market that not even governments can compete with. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. He said there's a 70 to 80% chance of a success for this third flight, which is better than the last one, I guess. So Yeah, but that's a little bit of guesswork there, wouldn't you think? I th- yeah, yeah. You have to take it with a grain of salt. I'm not sure how much science is behind a lot of that. I have to take so. it with a, with a whole shaker. All right. <laughs> but to be fair, let's uh, roll back over to Blue Origins. So you, yeah. you wrote about Blue Origins' big push. What's that about? I, yeah, well, uh, our, this, is, this is also from Ars, Ars Technica. I think our story is coming out on space.com later today. Um, but but <laughs> we are, you are right. We were kind of focused on uh, private space, space capsules falling out of the space well, and, yeah. and, and, and landing on the moon this week. Um, but, um, but no, yeah, this is interesting because after years of development, um, we, we actually first saw this through orbital cameras last week when uh, some eagle eyed uh, satellite, you know, image operators saw in their data that that the, they have they had taken pictures of SpaceX's New Glenn prototype on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Uh-huh. They had teased this on Twitter or pardon me on X um, earlier in the month, where they they showed that the article, the test article, had left their hangar there. Blue Origin, if for people who have never been down to the Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral Space Force Station area, has this giant. Uh, white and blue factory that they've built Huge. for the New Glenn. It's 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 yeah. apps, and they have like their own mini VAB there as well for vertical integration, and um and it's just been there <coughs> where they've been building uh these these there's rocket prototypes the the biggest fairing ever for a rocket uh, I guess before Starship and um and we haven't seen them do any pad test. They do have a pad. Uh, over at the Space Force Station, uh, that they that for they were trying to get Pad 39A, which SpaceX ended up winning the lease from that. It was a whole big thing way back when. Uh, but they rolled they rolled the test vehicle out to the little staging hangar at the pad, and then we didn't hear anything. So last week we saw these orbital photos. Uh, some other photographers were able to use zoom cameras to get really close to see it on the pad. This week, SpaceX actually released the, the images themselves that show you the uh, first stage test article, not the full article, on the pad uh, for fit tests and, and whatnot, you know, all lit up in all its glory. They were supposed to have a, a demonstration flight of this New Glenn rocket this year. So this is encouraging to see that they're on the way to it. Uh, I would like to know how close they are to that, that first flight. But one of the big hurdles, as we've discussed before, uh, in January was the BE4 rocket engine, and we saw that perform to stunning success with the Vulcan launch, uh, because those engines are also used on United Launch Alliance's uh, rocket there too. Yeah, and those are the ones he's willing to give away or sell. So you got to figure the ones exactly. But on his rocket, uh, let me are just, the good uh, ones? 
add something for you here. The diameter, so typical diameter of a rocket fairing, uh, I think this includes Falcon 9, is about 15 feet, right? Yes. Yeah, New Glenn is 23 feet, and Starship, as we all know, is 30. But the New Glenn fairing, like most rocket fairings, splits and goes away, so it completely opens up and releases whatever payload it's got. Starship is going to have to figure out something else, either cargo doors or whatever. So that that's going to be a little bit of a consideration too. So you want yeah. to be able to have something bigger, but if will you be able to get it out completely, or do you have to have something narrower because the doors don't quite span, you know, half the the, the circumference of Starship? So you know, we don't know. Or, or will you do a, a hippo uh, approach like Rocket Lab is doing with their new neutron rocket, which mm-hmm. where the fairing is built into the second stage and opens up like a clamshell, uh, but is still attached and then lets out the, 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 right. the payload and then closes again for reentry. That, that could be pretty cool. Our, our Stetico, though, they, they have a, a great photo from blue origin with, um, with the, the new CEO, Dave limp and Jeff Bezos. They're kind of marveling at, uh, at the, the rocket on the pad with its, its liver, its livery there. It looks very nice. And it's like, actually, no, it, it does have, the, the upper stage in this picture, the one that I'd seen was still the first stage. So, uh, so that's pretty nice that they have like the full, the fully stacked rocket there. Um, which yeah, we didn't need see. to get engines of gas in it. <laughs> that's right. And fuel. And you have to build, they want to land this rocket very similar to what SpaceX does, which is they landed on uh, offshore on a barge, uh, in blue origins case, that is it's a not big rocket. To it, vertically I know. On right. Yeah. Um, now, now, Blue Origin uh, wants to land these first stages on a moving barge. That was their plan. The barge will be moving, and then the rocket will also be, be doing it. It's unclear if that plan has changed uh, uh, very much. Then there was a big um, kerfuffle between Blue Origin and SpaceX, too, because SpaceX had that plan and did it first uh, uh, as well. Uh, but the concept has been around since before SpaceX, and so I think that's what settled that argument way back when. Um, but this will be interesting because I think they want to reuse both stages, right? Is that right, Rod? Uh, does that ring a bell? I think so, but I haven't. Yeah. You know, it, it, I, I get that mixed up with the uh, the recovery efforts for the Vulcan, which seem to change every two weeks. Yeah. So, that's that's going to be way down the line, uh, yeah. I think. So, um, but I, yeah, just, I mean, would you want to be the guy flying the helicopter that's supposed to grab the engines as they're hurtling back? <laughs> yeah, I know they're on a parachute, but still, it's like, oh, we're a little lost. There. Oops. Okay. Well, I mean, like they 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 brought they brought that stuff back in like the the sixties, right? With the with yeah, the but corona. those were like Corona film capsules that were the size of you know a suitcase. We're talking about something well we're talking about basically an engine pod from the lower stage that's huge and very well, massive rocket lab caught caught a rocket did they not then they catch the they snagged a a first stage from their booster so it can be done something yeah. a lot larger than that so we're talking about a, a pod an engine if pod. you say so, so well um, i don't know i don't know can I do a story that's not on the rundown? At least, I yes, of course. Is. I picked like just for, for everyone listening at home. I picked like my favorites, and they're mostly space light because I like rockets and stuff. But, um, but Rod, uh, I'm sure if you've got um, if you <laughs> if you've got something to say uh, that you liked this week, we should definitely include it too. Well, I was excited because you got all the stuff in before Thursday night at midnight this time. Um, wow! Oh, oh, I know. Wow! Snap that boy! Um, big, big butt quasar discovered. Real far away, yeah. Uh, what is it? Twelve billion, yeah, twelve billion light years. This is Quasar J zero five nine dash four three five one. They really got to work on the romantic names. <laughs> now, what I found so interesting about this, uh, besides the numbers, which I'll get to in a second, this was spotted apparently forty years ago 
Really? But it wasn't understood what it was. So it was <laughs> lurking in the data. They had an idea there was something going on. So Quasar, of course, is a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy, um, but just properly classified. So what took so long? Well, when the astronomers were asked, they said, look, there's a lot of data to sift through. Uh, we had more recent observations that updated this, so that helps us pinpoint what it was, but also machine learning and AI has helped them to sift through a lot of this stuff. Um, they didn't, they didn't just put it like on the shelf, uh, to like look at it later when they had time. Heal. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they were a little light on details, but, but he did, you know, he just said lots of data, lots of data. And, because I've done that and I've missed like invitations to weddings and stuff because I just, I'll, I'll open that letter later, you know, and then okay, well, my don't, Nobel don't Prize miss your kids' college <laughs> graduation at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so an accretion disk, let's talk about the accretion disk. So the accretion disk is this big disk of crud that's orbiting the black hole that gets sucked in. And that's what gave us its luminosity in this case is all this stuff going in and being converted into energy. Um, and the accretion disk for this black hole is estimated to be seven light years across. Seven so that's almost light double years. the distance to Alpha Centauri just for the accretion disk. Can you imagine that? No, I mean, that's like the next star over and it's almost yeah. twice that size. And these are, you know, these are just numbers. And it's the kind of stuff we have trouble getting our heads wrapped around. But all I can say is good Lord. Uh, so it's the brightest astronomical object ever spotted. Equivalent of, let's see, what did they say? I think I had it here somewhere, but, but I, uh, I think it was like a hundred and the luminosity of 155 i don't remember it was like this hugely bright i should know this because i've had this to be doing the story on the radio but maybe you could look it up while i'm jabbering this, this is the but one that eats the sun every day it eats the oh, sun every day okay for 370 solar masses a year so it's pretty hungry um and uh oh here we go 18 billion times our sun's luminosity Wow. Now, how do you even get your head wrapped around that number? I've gone out because I'm stupid when I was a kid. I, I used to go out and stare at the sun. You know, it's really bright. It hurts your eyes. That's why I had cataract surgery when I was 50. So that's bright. So, you know, and of course, it's, it's far away. So we're looking at something back, you know, just after the formation of the universe. Um, and then there's that other story, of course, about the galaxy that shouldn't exist because it's too old. Um, but that that's a different one. Anyway, so where, this, did, where did you see the where did you see the brightest quasar story? So was it space.com? Because uh, no, it was because <laughs> we we have that story. I think it was Scientific but, American. Yeah, yeah, I, I was reading theirs theirs too. I allow myself to 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 read them every now and then. Um, so uh, very bright, very big, really spectacular. Hopefully, there will be be more news about this. And of course, what we all really want to know is. What took so long? Oh, here, John's yeah. posted the uh, story in the Slack. So, yeah. It's bright. Oh, I, my number was off. As bright as five. <laughs> oh, I love this. 500 trillion suns. 500 trillion. With the and that's from Scientific American. 500 trillion, not billion. Um, you know, these numbers, you try. It's like when you were a little kid and you used to, to lie in bed at night and think, what's outside the universe? Okay, I'm going to wrap the universe in a, in a big glad bag but what's outside of it oh my head hurts mommy I, I need some sugar um so this is one of those moments but uh yeah so very cool story maybe that's the one that will um save humanity like that movie interstellar is that the one that matthew mcconaughey is gonna like sink into and discover the <laughs> i'm sorry can i just say it one more time astronauts don't cry ever Matthew, and you can't launch a Saturn V in secret with nobody noticing, okay? <laughs> They're big and noisy. 
that was a dumb movie. Oh, just they wait were, for the hate mail. They were also working inside that launch complex, like, and then they launched the rocket, like. Well, and it's it. like <laughs> it was like Moonfall. Oh, we've got this museum exhibit of a Saturn Fiber space shuttle. Let's just hose it off and paint it, and we'll launch it. And it's like, guys. There's seals and old machinery <laughs> and electronics that have outgassed and corroded and a lot of things to fix. Okay, well, we got nine people. We can do it in a week. I, I think um, we should just, I watched, I watched Interstellar thing. again, by the way. Okay, stupid. It's, it, it's, one more, it's still fun. So. <laughs> okay, one more thing about Interstellar, though. That stupid robot, if yes. you want to have something that has Mars? mobility anywhere other than a concrete, a smooth concrete pool table, you know, why would you build a robot that's built out of three little rectangles that kind of flips around like a, a, a Chinese finger puzzle? I mean, it just makes no sense. No, it, it has appendages that come off and can like work, have oh, even ever smaller, ever smaller mechanism arm things. It sounds like you're talking but, about yourself. Yeah, um, you sound, it's a, <laughs> and also, I just want to ask we're, my we're last question. We're getting away from the news of the week here. But, okay, but, but the last question about Interstellar. <laughs> Why? Oh, two questions. One, the Rangers going into the the Planet X, right? It's almost like Bugs Bunny with the big X on it, and it bumps into a cloud that breaks off. The ice cloud. That's the one yes. thing they wish so, they hadn't included. Yes. How do ice clouds float? One asks. You gotta. You gotta. And then, alien planet. <laughs> yeah, alien magic. And then it comes down, and lands, and uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, who was the the crazy professor that was left there? Matt Damon. Yeah. Alert if you haven't seen it, by the way, a twenty-minute bar fight on the ice. What the hell was the point of that? So I, uh, yeah, we, I'm going to express my strong feelings. We're, we're good, we're good. I, I, I actually recently heard a, uh, an explanation that they were never on the ground at all, and that the ice that they were on was another one of those frozen clouds. So oh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. You know what, listeners of the <laughs> world, write in to Rod and I. To tell me what you think. Is Interstellar a good space movie or, as Rod contends, a quote-unquote bad space movie? Because I feel well, that it's Okay, good. it wasn't Clearly as bad Rod. as Ad Astra. Ad <laughs> Astra like, was I, Ad crossing the solar system to deal with his daddy issues, which was <laughs> embarrassing and stupid. Okay. But, right uh, in to say, do you think Interstellar and Ad Astra are, are good okay. movies? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm voting for Robinson Crusoe on Mars because, like the poster said in 1964, it's scientifically accurate. Okay, I think we got time for one more story. What news, do you want to do? Right, let's let's do let's do the James Webb Space Telescope story. How about that? Okay, please. Right, this this a one, golden uh, discovery. You say with yeah, a capital G. That's right. That's right. This um this the reason I bring this up is because I don't understand why uh. Uh, it's so popular uh, when we, we write these stories, but it, it is. And um, and we were surprised that this came from the James Webb Space Telescope because it wasn't really clear from the initial discovery. But astronomers using the, you know, still kind of baby James Webb Space Telescope have detected some neutron star mergers and they were looking at like the aftermath, basically what happens after these stars, um, you know, cr- crash into each other and then explode. And for, for everyone... That needs a refresher. These neutron stars are like the so-called end state of stars. They're so dense, they get packed down where you have like a, a star the size of our sun, but it's like 12 miles across. It's the size of New York City, but all in there. And it's so fused together that uh, they can't, they can't, you know, burn. There's no fusion anymore because they're all neutrons now. There's no, there's no interaction going on. Um, so they're super dense, ultra dense. I mean, like, like an ounce is of a, a spoonful is like a trillion tons or something like that. Something yeah. Crazy. Yeah, another one of those numbers games. 
Yeah, and uh, and and what they have have finally shown, which is something that scientists have long theorized, is that a lot of the heavy elements in this in this case, it's gold, hence the golden, that these star crashes. Oh, I didn't create. Okay. That the was clever of you. In clever of the universe. You. Yeah. See? See? I'm, I'm, I'm known to have a pun in space once in a while. And, uh, and, and so, so this is like something that, that they've been saying they think actually happens out there. And now they have used James Webb uh, to actually show, to prove that metals heavier, that, as they said, they said this is the first time, and I quote, we've been able to verify that metals heavier than iron and silver were freshly made in oh. front of us. They watched the wow. elements uh, actually be formed through this interaction, and uh, and they use the James Webb Space Telescope uh, to prove a pretty good investment of ten billion dollars or whatever it was. Right? Was it hundred billion dollars? A lot of billion ten. dollars. It was ten. <laughs> it was ten, or the equivalent of, of most of one Mars sample return. They called it. There. They called it thrilling. They studied a kilonova, which is like this extra. Uh, it's a supernova, but like extra, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, supernova bonus. <laughs> and, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And okay. and uh, uh, and they 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 combined the James Webb's observations with those of the Hubble Space Telescope, mm. which you know, like myself, is several decades old and still apparently doing a good job. And uh, and, and they were able to kind of lump them together to figure all of this out. And it, it's it's a nice kind of case of them sh- like having a theory and then proving it with these highly advanced space telescopes um, to show. That they can do it, and of course, this is from uh, the gamma ray burst twenty three oh three oh seven a is is what actually occurred when these two neutron stars ca- crashed. Watch uh, your language, they- buddy. <laughs> so that, well, that was cool. I, I thought it was exciting that they were able to finally prove that that's how yeah. you get the gold. So the gold in 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 our teeth, the gold in our rings, all made through these giant super dense star crashes. So. That's all. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I was having a moment of wow. This has been a big wow episode. I like these. Yeah. Um, so speaking of episodes, uh, we usually don't do this, but I just want to let people know coming up, we think we have Alan Stern coming back to visit us, which will be fun. We haven't talked to him for quite a while. Uh, shortly after we're done here, I'm going to go have lunch with our friend Pascal Lee, who's going to join us in a few weeks with a new major discovery he made. Ooh. Something on Mars that we will be shh. talking about then. It's a bar. Yeah, shh. It's a big secret. Be, be, be patient. But it's, you know, he, he told me this story and I was uh, actually kind of speechless, but then I'm a, a Mars fanatic. And we'll be talking about the solar eclipse coming up on April 8th. April 8th. Which Mark you should, your calendars if you haven't already. If you can go watch it, watch it. But please use honest to God, real sun, sun uh, protective devices don't just go on amazon and buy the cheapest ones at 99 cents because they're they're not all actually good should we should we tell everyone that they're gonna have to be stuck with me for a couple of weeks well i was going uh, to oh, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna so i was gonna say thanks for joining us today with our catching up with what's what in the uh, what's up in space edition there's um, so many more stories be, we had planned so i know man. well but <laughs> but you'll be back so i'll be on travel for two weeks as i'm doing a speaking tour in lovely ecuador my first visit there so i'll leave you in tarek's very capable hands and imagine this tarek two weeks with no snarky comments <laughs> what are you gonna do i mean it'll be such a drag for you it's gonna be so boring and i'm gonna, and, I'm gonna run the show into the ground what are we gonna and do next <laughs> week you get to do our 100th episode without me 
That's right. That's, that's a, right. A, another banner talk anvil sound. One hundred. One hundred shows. So um, that's thrilling. And I'm sorry I won't be here, but maybe I'll leave you a maybe I'll leave you a recording. You can play yeah. something something unflattering. Um, so Tarek. Yes, Rod. Since we have no guests to queue up for this, where can we keep an eye on your overly engaged video life, video game <laughs> life? Well, you can find me on uh, at space.com. As always, this weekend, there's not a lot happening. So hopefully I'll be able That's to rest a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, see. knock on wood. Like, well, we're, 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 actually, this weekend, we're going to be following the IM1 mission. I should point that out, you know, because we're, we are tracking that live. Uh, and you can find me on the Twitter at Tarek J. Malik. And uh, if you like to watch very uh, occasional uh, video game uh, videos, you can find me on the YouTube at Space Ron Place, where... I have just gotten the Lady Gaga skin in Fortnite. And if, <laughs> why, why do I care about that? <laughs> because, because you're a dork. That's because, why. because I, oh, I love God. her music. I love her music. And also she bought out like a Virgin Galactic flight like a few years ago. I'm not actually sure if they still have that or not. Did but, she invite you? No, she didn't. Sadly, oh. and this was around the time she had that meat dress. So maybe it was more than a few years ago. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Anyway, exciting. Wow. Lady so, Gaga's in Fortnite. <laughs> another look deep inside the personality of Tarek Malik. And I did watch a couple of your videos and I felt like I was right there with you and uh, I felt soiled. Okay. And of <laughs> wow. course, wow. you can always find me if you, if for those few who want to at pilebooks.com and at adastromagazine.com. My favorite magazine because it's mine, mine, mine. Don't forget to drop us a line at twist at twit.tv. That's T-W-I-S at twit.tv. We always welcome your comments, suggestions, and ideas. And thank you for those of you who have been sending in your kind and helpful emails, especially if you included a joke. We've gotten some real humdingers. Uh, don't forget to check out space.com, best space website on the web, and, of course, the National Space Society, which is the second best space site on the web. Both are good places to hang your hat and satisfy your cravings. Well, space flight ones anyway. New episodes of podcast published every Friday on your favorite podcatcher. So make sure to subscribe. Tell your friends. Give us reviews. We'll take five stars, six champagnes, whatever you got. And you can head to our website at twit.tv slash TWIS. And please don't forget, you can get all the great programming on the Twit Network ad free on Club Twit. We need you on Club Twit. Uh, ad revenue is down. You've heard Leo talk about it. Podcasts are stumbling right and left. This network's doing better than most, but they still need your help. And for $7 a month, you can get all kinds of extra cool stuff. You can get this and other podcasts without commercials. And you'll be helping out the best cause in podcasting anywhere on the planet Earth. So step up and be counted. You can follow the Twit Tech Podcast Network. Say that four times fast. At Twit on Twitter and on Facebook and Twit.tv on Instagram. Tark. Yes. Thank you. I bow to you. Have a good two weeks. I'm I'm gonna miss you, Rod. Trusting you implicitly. <laughs> Get back oh, soon. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully I'll I'll come back uh, in the flesh and not in a box. So I'll, with, with luck, I'll hug, see you in a couple of weeks. Hug hug a Galapagos tortoise for me, please. So. I think that's illegal, but I'll figure something out. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>